from Wakefield. It's the Nolan Carnet Show. Inviting you to join Nolan and his guest this week, Tim O'Shea, to the program. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Nolan. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the program. Joining me this week is a legend, and I repeat that legend in the basketball <laughs> world. Not only was he a player at BC under coaches like Gary Williams and um, Mr. Davis, he also coached at URI as an assistant coach. He helped bring in one of the greatest URI players of all time, Katino Mobley. He also coached with Al Skinner at BC. Then he coached at Ohio and Bryant, and then now at the Naval Academy Prep School in Newport. He is the one and only, all the way from Newport, Rhode Island, Mr. Um, Tim O'Shea. Tim, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Of course, I I have to share some and, and share some roadie pride with you after you spent all those glorious years at URI yeah. and then at Bryant as well. Um, I mentioned you know, at the Naval Academy uh, Prep School, you know, you've been there for a few years, but during the pandemic, it's kind of been a, a wild time, interesting times for everyone. And you got that job in 2020, I believe. So for you, what's it like now looking at it from a coach's perspective, but a human perspective that now things have sort of died down a little bit? Well, obviously, um, coaching at the prep school level, what I'm doing now is very different than the collegiate level, whereas I think COVID hit a lot harder in that environment because as the coaches at the collegiate level, we were responsible for the kids 24-7, getting meals, all the logistics of the dorms, uh, scheduling, trying to play games, travel, everything. Whereas the prep school, in fact, um, last year we had pretty much we had no games. Due to no, two years ago we had no games. Last year we had a limited schedule, and this year we'll probably have a full schedule. But I am—it's a very regimented uh, deal at the, the Naval Academy Prep School, where their day is pretty well, um, um, you know, taken care of. And there's a short sports period, about an hour and a half in the afternoon, where I have them for basketball practice. And we put together a sort of a hybrid schedule of prep schools and community colleges. Uh, play about 21 games. It's really a developmental program to send these re- kids that are recruited to go to the Naval Academy and Coast Guard onto those two schools after a year here in Newport. And nothing beats, I'm sure, that, that beautiful view of, of Newport where you are. I'm sure nothing no. compares to that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to beat Newport. That's one of the real incentives when I left Ohio University and took over Bryant. A big part of it was the opportunity to live back here and um, live in Newport, quite frankly. Sure. What ha- before I ask the question, everyone that either had on or just in general in life, you know, during these times and been able to reflect on your own self and realize things about yourself. What's one thing that Tim O'Shea has learned about himself that he didn't know prior to the last two years of these wild times? Well, you mean because of COVID? I, I don't know. I, I, I've been really had some, it hasn't been too bad for me again, because I haven't had the stress that I think a lot of coaches have been under because of COVID, because of the rule changes with uh, the transfer portal and um, name, likeness, and image. These are all made the co- the job of coaching at the Division One level way more stressful sure. and difficult. Whereas I've got, I think, the perfect semi-retirement job, um, you know, helping out here at the Naval Academy Prep School, which is only a mile from my house. I still get a taste of coaching, but it isn't the uh, 24-7 uh, routine that you have at the collegiate level. So I've actually been really quite happy and um, really can't really claim too much stress over the last couple of years like a lot of people have gone through. Well, that's you can't complain there, though, then living right, life on, right. on, on easy street. Growing up in Massachusetts, Wayland, Massachusetts specifically, what was your relationship like with basketball, not only in terms of 
having recreationally, but in terms of maybe succeeding in that realm as a player, but also as a coach? Well, I mean, basketball is obviously hugely important uh, to me growing up. Big influence growing up was obviously the five-star camp, which was sort of the place to go to back in those days to get known and to sort of develop a reputation to get recruited. Um, went on to Boston College. A um, little unlucky in that I was a point guard. I happened to arrive at the same time, uh, sandwich between two NBA point guards. John Bagley would play 13 years, and Mike Adams would play, I think, 12 years. But, um, you know, I always had an idea in my head that if, once playing was done, uh, pursue uh, coaching. And a lot of that probably came from the five-star camp where I was around these charismatic figures like a Rick Pitino when he was younger and uh, Hubie Brown. And a lot of people that went on to great success in college and professional um, coaching. They were sort of my role models. So I figured when I was done playing, I didn't really want a nine-to-five job. I w- really wanted to coach. And I was very fortunate. My first job was actually as a graduate assistant at URI with Brendan Malone. Interesting. Um, during, you know, as that was my first time. He gave me a GA spot, a grad assistant spot. Back in those days, that was sort of the entry level position into coaching. And that's where I first met Al Skinner because Al was an assistant coach on that yeah. staff. And um, Brendan's son, Mike Malone, was a young kid then running around mm-hmm. the gym. I used to feed him some balls and try to work with him a little bit. Now he's coaches the Denver Nuggets. So uh, that staff turned out to be really actually a very strong staff in that. Al always went on to be eventually become the head coach of URI and enjoy a ton of success. For you, maybe <coughs> maybe there wasn't another option, but I'm curious if there was and if you're willing to share. If basketball wasn't your option after high school or right. college, what were your other, not just interests, but opportunities that you wanted to pursue? Well, it's funny, you know, after I got done being a grad assistant for two years, <coughs> excuse me, one year with Brendan, and then I finished up at Boston College with Gary Williams. I didn't have that full-time coaching job and I was concerned of getting into that rut where I saw a lot of people fall into like those non-paying coaching jobs and eat up five or six years where you don't really have anything going and not really lead anywhere. So I started interviewing for other jobs, actually interviewed with New Balance a couple of times for some sort of marketing job or whatnot. But fortunately for me, a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Kinchowski, who's now deceased, got me an interview at Yale with a guy named Dick Kuchin, whom I didn't know. And most of the time in coaching, when you get hired, it's because you know somebody, have a pre-existing sure. relationship. But, you know, I, I interviewed and didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And I always remember I was at home, parents' house, again, trying to figure things out and got a call from uh, Dick Kuchin. He offered me the job at Yale. And that following Monday, I uh, you know, had my first sort of semi-full-time job because back then at Yale, you also had to work in the ticket office as sure. well as coach but I did that for two years and then was able to reconnect with Al when he moved up to the head coaching job at URI nine years there four years at BC then I got my opportunity to be a head coach at Ohio U so I didn't really have to spend much time thinking about you know what else I was going to do because I really did want to coach um and um I I, you know I felt that was something I knew because of my experiences at five star and um you know I could sort of hit the ground running and it, it just worked out you, you played and then graduated from BU, um, or no, 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 Boston College. I'm Boston, Boston College. Boston College. You, you played for Tom Davis there. What set him apart uh, your first two years there from maybe any other coaches that were looking at you when you first got there? Well, you know, for somebody who wanted to coach, I was somewhat fortunate that two really good coaches, Tom Davis, he really had a system. He was big on the flex offense and pressure defense. Um, you know, I had him for two years, and I, of course, I had Gary Williams, who had been an assistant for Tom Davis, but would later go on to coach Ohio State 
and then Maryland, where he won a national championship. Similar system, but more of a player's coach than Tom Davis was, but both excellent coaches. Um, so I learned that system. In fact, you know, the flex, I think I had a lot to do with it, sort of bringing that to Al, and Al really had tremendous success with it, both at URI, but in particular at Boston College. Um, now, the shot clock made that, a, that was an offense, was a lot of screening and sort of a tight offense. As the shot clock, I mean, the three-point shot became more and more a part of the game. You don't see many people running it now because it required a certain amount of clock to sort of break down the defense. But, um, you know, it's fortunate. Um, they were both excellent tacticians. They were good recruiters. And they had a system, which I learned, obviously, playing for them. You grad As I mentioned, graduating from BC, did you ever think that, or ever want to go back to BC and coach the team if, if that was available or was that just oh uh, sure yeah that you know I was fortunate to go as Al's associate head coach and we had great success a lot of times in coaching um you know that next opportunity is as much a function of you doing well but also right place right time sure you know I you know there were some had some really good years at Ohio and it had Boston College opened at, during that time and Al moved up to a, you know a different job or what have you you know, I probably would have been a leading candidate, but it just never timed up quite that way. And, you know, I always had loved URI, would have loved to have had a chance to come back to URI at some point. But again, the timing was never quite right. So um, when Brian came along, it was a chance to get back to this part of the, the country, um, get my daughter, I thought, better schools and also get um, be around my parents as they really were getting quite elderly at that point. So you never know where the opportunity is going to come. And, you know, taking a program from Division Two to Division One was Certainly an interesting sure. challenge at Bryant, but in the end, um, you know, a lot of positive experiences there as well. Sure. Uh, doing research, and I don't know how, like Wikipedia, how true sports references in, in terms of statistics and um, right. game results, but it, it said you you had a winning record against PC as a player when you were playing at, at BC. Well, well that's, it could be true. I don't even know. I mean, back then, Providence was in a little bit of a down cycle, sure. I believe. I think, uh, you know, Dave Gavitt had retired and, you know, they weren't the power that they, you know, they were in many years. Um, so I don't know how much that stat really sure. means, you know, how teams, programs have been flow, you know, BC sure. has been down for quite a few years now since Al left, um, but that could all change with sure. the, the new coach seems to be doing a good job. For, for that though, and in, in, in nowadays you see, or how did that change for you as a coach then play, coaching against PC when you were at URI or any other school? <laughs> Well, I used to say when I was at URI, my favorite night of the year is when we played Providence because it was always such a big game. You know, yeah. use, the back then, we always played at the Civic Center. We didn't have a Ryan Center, so they didn't come down to URI. But it was it was something to look forward to. I, and I think not only for the coaches, but for the fans and the players. Sure. It was just such an intense rivalry game. Um, and there were always great games. It didn't matter if URI had a good team or didn't have a good team. Same thing with PC, could have an off year or whatever. But that game was sort of like an Army-Navy um, game in football or basketball. Sure, it's a yeah. tremendous, tremendous rivalry. What do you think is – and granted, the URI has a new coach this year, and Archie Miller, and he, already you're seeing all those people he's bringing into the program to help bring it back up. And, you know, best uh, thanks for all the years yeah. that Cox had brought there. But what do you think was missing from that – maybe th that game or well, the URI team in that rivalry? I mean, the, the recent years? Yeah, between the both teams. Well, I, 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 well, I think what's really what hurt David Cox, quite frankly, were the transfers. You know, yeah. Obi Toppin leaving. Toppin, I don't know if Obi, but to, the Toppin kid yeah. goes to Kentucky. The other kid goes to UConn. Those are huge hits when you're sort of a mid. You're, it, it, they're a mid-major, mid-major plus program. 
but you're losing a guy like Martin, for example. I think he signed a two-way contract in the NBA. Yeah. Toppin's got a chance to certainly make an NBA team. The transfer um, can dramatically change a team both for the better or the worse, uh, depending on how it goes for you on these new rules. And I think, of course, now you've got the pressure to um, provide another source of income between name, likeness, and image. And a lot of schools are struggling to figure out how they're going to do that. Well, and and I think instead of the basketball element, because you never know what happens after your three or four years, people care more of what they're getting out of in terms of the monetary aspect and and the media attention. And uh, the basketball is more important. But nowadays, it's all about that. That money you mentioned your, your experience as a uh, grad assistant for uh, URI in both P, uh, BC. What did that teach you in terms of coaching to then eventually getting assistant job or coaching? Well, job? I mean, again, I was fortunate. I was around Brendan Malone, who went on to have a you know a stellar career both in the NBA, mainly after he left URI, um, and Gary Williams certainly coached one national championship. It just allowed me to you know be around people that were successful and well respected. Sure. Um, you know, when you're at that level, you, you know, when, when you're on the road playing your road games, you're constantly meeting other assistant coaches that have the potential to be head coaches. Uh, you're you're traveling in a circle that um, gives you a shot, at least, to get into that level and make the yeah. next step. And unfortunately, I was able to get on the road full time at Yale, which was really a unique experience because that was an opportunity to recruit the whole country. Sure. When you're an Ivy League school, you're, you're not regional, you're national. And I think that helped me a lot going from Yale back to URI with Al, the fact that I've had that type of recruiting experience. At, at that point when you were with URI, I believe that was when Silk and Tommy, yeah. Silk Owens and Tommy Garrett were just getting there. What was it like to experience even just a little bit of, of them at that point? Well, I was there when Silk and Tommy were freshmen and the program really was still struggling at that yeah. point. And it really didn't take off until, um, you know, Brendan left and then Tom Penders came in. Sure. And I think, you know, sometimes the coaching change can be really beneficial for players. Brendan was a great coach, but I think Tom Penders looked at guys a little differently, you know, and Tommy Garrick and um, obviously Carlton Owens, they flourished under his leadership yeah. as well as did Kenny Green. Exactly. Kenny Green really blossomed as a player and it was sort of a perfect storm. Everything came together and um, next thing you know, they're going to the Sweet 16. But I believe yeah. Penders was only there two years. Yeah. And then Al took over. And but it was the- a dramatic... Um, Turnaround, but Brendan Malone deserves a lot of credit for sort of laying sure. a foundation. He just didn't, wasn't there for the for the turnaround. Very true. It, it, that that means a, a whole lot, especially with some of the players nowadays at URI who who have stayed there. Uh, you see Sebastian yes. Thomas and yep. the others who have been there through the the more darker darker times. You, you you sort of mentioned that with with Yale, or I shouldn't say that with Yale, but going from coaching at Yale and it's a national level of of right. recruiting players going from maybe you know, BC big East conference to then going to the Ivy league. What was that like in terms of transition? Was that easy for you to make that? Well, I was just thrilled to have a full-time coaching job when I went to Yale. We had a great player with him at Chris Dudley. They would go on to play 17 years in the wow. NBA. He was a backup center in the NBA for all those years, but he had a great career. Uh, we had good teams. I mean, it was, it was a thrill, but I also thought I benefited tremendously um, from that opportunity to recruit the whole country and recruit without scholarships, which is a little more challenging. Wow. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. You've got to find good players and you've got to figure out who you can get. Don't want to waste too much time on guys you can't get. And I think it set me up well to transition to URI. And obviously, we you know we got it going pretty good there at times. You, you, 
you then you arrive back to URI a, a year off, I believe, of URI winning, making it to the Sweet 16. Right. And Al Skinner is now there. He's the head coach. He had been there right. for a few years prior. What right. was the conversation like between you and him in terms of what you want to provide and what the team expectation was like? Well, I think it was tough for Al to follow Tom Penders because Tom Penders had been so successful. Uh, you know, the program was really at a high, you know, Sweet 16 run and some good players had graduated. So, um, you know, it was a little tough in the beginning. We still had Kenny Green, who was by far our best player, but Tommy Garrick and Colton Owens were gone. The backcourt, right. which is probably your most important positions. Um, we had transfer Eric Leslie from Villanova that, you know, he was okay, but he wasn't at the same level as other guys were at. So we struggled the first couple of years. And then, um, you know, we were able to get Mike Brown on a transfer. We took a big kid by the name of Michael Anderson, who took a while to yeah. develop. Um, then got Antonio Reynolds Dean, and then obviously we got Tyson and Catino, and we were able to build it up. But fortunately, we were also fortunate too that people were somewhat patient because I think it took us until that fourth year to really get it going again. And then when we did, um, there were several good. We beat Purdue in the NCAA yeah. tournament. We had Glenn Robinson. Uh, we made a nice run in the NIT, which was still a very prestigious tournament back then. Um, and you know, we had some really good players. And that was a great time for the Atlantic 10. I believe one year we had five teams get in. Remember, wow. Temple was a powerhouse then. Yes. UMass was a powerhouse. GW was really good. Um, I'm trying to think. We, we were an NCAA team. I'm trying to remember who the fifth team was. GW, Temple, UMass, us. And there was one other team. And uh, Oh, I believe it was Virginia Tech. They okay. were in the league yeah. then. Yeah, there were some different members back then. But it was a great league. What was it for you? I mentioned in the intro, you, you brought – Katino Mobley to URI, you're the right. one who, who dealt with that. What was your what was that journey like for you to get some of that nature? Well, you know, get you have to understand Katino was not um, you know, considered at that time. Obviously, you know, he turned out to be a great pro and a great player, but he wasn't considered like a super blue chip recruit at the time. We actually uh, recruited another kid that same year out of Maine Central by the name of Sean Colson, who was a point guard. Okay. And we really felt we needed a point guard. Um, and I forget, you know, all the details. But Catino and um, Sean wanted to go to school together. And so we, um, I, w I wouldn't say Catino was a secondary player, but, you know, we, we thought he'd be a good player. But, we, it was, you know, he had to sit out a year because of the, the academic rules back then. Sure. Uh, we weren't sold that he was going to be a star by any means. We thought he could play for us and be a good player that he would develop into a, you know, what, a 12-year NBA pro mm -hmm. and have the career he did. I don't think anybody saw that coming, but we knew he had talent. Um, it's interesting. Sean Colson only lasted, I think, one or two seasons at URI. He had a bad Achilles in injury. Oh, wow. It's only about five foot eleven. He transferred to UNC Charlotte, where he actually had a great career. You know what it was? He and Tyson were playing the same position, sure. and Tyson Tyson was the starter. It's like having two good quarterbacks. <laughs> so he actually ended up signing a few ten day contracts in the NBA. So he was a really good player, but. You know, we went with Tyson. That's probably what prompted his transfer more than anything. And then Catino stayed. And actually, I believe it was after sophomore year, if you ever interview Catino, he had a very serious hip injury that could have ended his career completely, which fortunately um, we had a great doctor by the name of Joe Fitzgerald over at South County Orthopedics, long retired now, um, performed the surgery, and Catino healed properly. And so his career was able to go on. But it was a very serious injury at the time. Dislocated his hip. It's, in a pickup game in Mackle <laughs> in Mackle Fieldhouse, so yeah, it was almost. I mean, his career—if this bone hadn't healed properly, he may never have played again. Sure. So he overcame. A, he overcame a lot 
to have the success in the career that he did. It's really a remarkable story. You you see with you, or I should say, you saw with you or I when um, Dan Hurley left to go to UConn for a uh, bigger job and get big, right. uh, more money, and right. that that happens all the time. I would think in, in coaching. When you or I was getting very much better and they were progressing higher and higher, more success when you were the right. assistant coach, were you worried at all that maybe Skinner would leave and then you'd have to worry about what you'd be doing next? No, I, I always felt confident that, you know, we were going to go, if Al went, he was going to bring us along and you know, we had a good relationship. And why not? We were all, we all worked well together. Sure. You know, if you've got a staff that's working together, you want to stay together. And um, so, no, no. In fact, you know, the BC thing really, to be honest with you, had as much to do with the fact that uh, Ron Petro hadn't extended Al's contract. So when Boston College job came available, Al wasn't even under contract to do or I, you know, because he, he got his contract had expired. I was because we had made the NCAA tournament, he was going to get a contract. But that was a tough thing when you let a coach, you know, obviously you don't feel great when your AD doesn't, you know, and Al had, had some good teams up to that point. They sure. don't give you an extension. So Al played it out and it ended up, he was a, one of the reasons he was available to Boston College was because um, no contract extension had been extended sure. to him. So you were, uh, at, you, you, were at, you were with him for a while, and then you obviously traveled with him to BC. What did that mean to you to have that length with him, but also what he believed in you as an, as, as your abilities as a coach? Well, I, you know, we were always. I just always thought we had a very good relationship. We were always on the same page. Uh, with recruiting style of play. So, you know, it made it really a lot of fun. Billy Cohen as well. We all kind of worked well together. There was never really any competition among the assistant coaches. And I think that's why we were successful. We had good chemistry as a staff. And you, know, you and we went up to Boston. And Ed Cooley joined that staff at the yeah. end, too. So we all became head coaches. Bill at Northeastern now. Ed, obviously, at Providence. I was at uh, Ohio and Bryant. So, um, you know, I think we did a good job. But also, I think we developed as coaches because Al allowed us to coach and gave us a lot of responsibility. I'm curious on your perspective on this, you know, talking about the success at URI, but then also the success Al and the rest of the coaching staff that you're part of had at BC. When you have a year that's very good, how do you manage to then do even better the following years? Is that something <laughs> you have to work Well, that's with? tough. Well, you got to keep your best play. You got to, well, look, a lot of the, what you're going to do the next season has an awful lot to do with who's coming back. You know, if you graduate your best players, you're going to take a step back. But if you have, excuse me, a lot of guys coming back, have a chance to be really good. So when we left Rhode Island, we knew that team coming back because you're going to add Luther Clay the following year. You still had Contino, Tyson, and Antonio and Preston. It was going to be a really, really good team. But the opportunity for Al, um, you know, to move into the Big East, to get, you know, obviously paid a lot more money. Um, you know, I wouldn't, there were, you know, obviously Ron Petro hadn't shown out a lot of, uh, uh, you know, when you let a coach's contract run out like that, most coaches, uh, you know, you can tend to resent that a little bit. Sure. You know, I don't know if Al ever said that, said that publicly, but it was time for Al to move on. And obviously Boston College was the home run for him because the stature of the big, as good as the Atlantic 10 is and was, it wasn't as good as what the Big East was. Sure. Just different platform. And most people that are objective understand that. Some people would argue otherwise, but it's just really not the case. I mean, we got to Boston College, much higher profile, a lot more money to work with. Uh, and obviously, we had to turn it around there, too, because they had had some controversy with their coach leaving. Where we only had, I think, three or four scholarship players when we arrived. So the fact that four years later, we were 27 and four was really pretty remarkable. But again, it's a function of recruiting. Sure. Got to get good players.
after many years of, of being assistant coach, you, you take the big job up finally and you become a head coach at Ohio. What and you talked about, you know, with Al Skinner it being time for him to move on from URI and go to BC. Yeah. What was your thought process and decision in terms of choosing Ohio? Well, I got really lucky. I mean, they they offered me the job. It's a really good mid-major job. It's not a low major, it's a mid-major, 13,000 seat arena. Uh, we had a great fan base. I actually walked in and inherited Brandon Hunter, who would go on to play for the Celtics in Orlando. So I had a pro right away. I was very fortunate. We were good enough in my first year there to win at North Carolina and um, really play at a high level. And fortunately, by year four, we had you know recruited some really good players and won the Mid-American, went to the NCAA tournament, um, came within a whisker of beating Florida. Um, but then after seven years there, um, you know, that's a long time. My daughter was in the fifth grade and Bryant was looking for a coach to help him go from two to one. I always loved Rhode Island. Sure. I thought it was a good move. Um, and they were willing to commit a lot of time. For that transition so um i did that for 10 years and um you know we got it going pretty good but in the end the thing that really kind of drove me nuts was the transfer sure. situation that is affecting a lot of coaches right now because for example you or i they could have a great class of really good young players and all of a sudden what happened to dave cox you know you lose a uh tyrese martin yes you, you lose a top and it's really hard to recover from that yes. So a big part of coaching now is not only recruiting, it's retention. Sure. And and the retention has gotten much more complicated now because there is really a, um, a way for schools to create um, a serious paycheck for some of these kids sure. that they really want. And it is being used as a recruiting tool. Dolly. Exactly. They allegedly say, no, it can't. <laughs> it can't be an incentive. But clearly it is. And it's playing a huge role. Hey. Ohio, when the first few years you're adjusting because now the sort of the tension's all on you at BC, URI, right. on Al Skinner. How do you deal with that as a new head coach of a, of a school? Well, I was lucky. I inherited good players who could win. I mean, winning is the cure-all for all any coach. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to Ohio was a well-financed program, very similar to URI. Budget-wise, even facility-wise, at that time we were better than URI. We had a spectacular arena out there. Um, it's a real college town. I was very lucky. That's not the type of job an assistant coach normally gets as their first job. Sure. It's almost like you go to a small school, do well, then maybe you get to go to Ohio. Uh, again, I was fortunate. I was lucky. BC was sort of a the magic team that year in the sense that we had gone from, uh, I think, 12 wins to 27 wins. And <laughs> I don't know, right place, right time. And it just worked out. After there, you go to Bryant, where, where yep. you spent 10 years and then retired there. You mentioned taking the school from D2 to D1. and Yeah, it was that. brutal. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that um, briefly. How committed were you to rolling up your sleeves and getting ready well, to fix that? it's the same thing, but it was it was tough. I mean, I'll tell you why. Because Bryant, now they are going to build a new arena now, which is great for the basketball. Yes, yes. But really, you know, to be honest, anybody, I'll say that it's a high school gym. And <laughs> it had tremendous challenges, but I, I also thought, uh, the benefit of being able to get back to Rhode Island to, um, you know, quality of life and all that. I thought it was, you know, and I'd had enough experience and confidence as a head coach. I thought, you know, in the first four years, so when you transition, you're not eligible for anything. So it's like being on probation. So my goal was by year four, when we were eligible again, to have a competitive team. We almost won the league. We had some good years. Uh, but then this transfer thing became the new phenomenon, which I always tell people, I don't care what level you were coaching at. If you had a kid averaging 20 points a game at 
whatever school, that kid was the happiest kid in your program. You never had to worry. Now, all of a sudden, the, this transfer, um, um, I guess, trend or whatever was just starting to take off. And I remember last year we had lost a leading scorer in rookie of the year in the previous spring. And again, that's like what happened to Cox. You lose two of your best guys. Yeah. It really just takes the wind out of your sails as a program. So what you see happening in a lot of schools now, and Brian would be an example. I think this guy's doing a good job. You All you do is take transfers because it's a one-time transfer because you, you, you think as a coach, well, if I get a high school kid and he does well, it's not going to stay. So now I'm better off just taking, um, you know, one and two year players. So I don't like the trend. I think it devalues education. Sure. I think it, um, the, the probability of the overwhelming majority of these kids that are transferring, moving up, are never going to make any real money playing sure. basketball. They might make a little uh, NIL money, but it's not going to be anything substantial. Sure. So I think it's really, I think the game is in a really tough place right now in terms of the culture. Well, you see at a school like you or I, they, they, they get a guy from UNC, the transfer, and that's great yeah. for a kid yeah. from a good school to come there. But it's different because, and you mentioned this, it's hard for a school like you or I to be able to lose all those players and then try to compete, unlike right. a big-time school that can just well, reload five-star players. And the problem is you're getting a kid from UNC that didn't play. Exactly. So is he really good? You don't know. I mean, you yeah. hope he's good enough. But if he was good enough to play, he wouldn't have left. So you're getting sure. sort of their... I mean, I, I don't even know who the kid is, but in a sense, you're getting the kids, they don't really care if they lose. Sure. And then you got to hope you can make something out of that. But it makes it hard to compete against those schools if you're, those are your aspirations. So I, I think recruiting's gotten way tougher. I think you're going to see more of these coaches. I think one of the reasons, they wouldn't say it out loud, but it doesn't surprise me to see Jay Wright, Coach K, Coach Williams, all these guys all of a sudden decide they've had enough. Because yeah. one of your jobs now as the head coach is, you have to really cultivate your boosters and get them in a mindset what they're willing to give some of these um, marketing deals out or and name like those image deals in order to get players. And that's yeah. a, that puts you in a very uncomfortable position as a head coach. You know, you get somebody to fund one kid and the kid's not playing well, not playing well. You've got to take that booster's call. You've got to sort of placate them. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a real mess right now. It's scary, and who knows what's going to happen. When the money gets bigger, it's going to get even more scarier. Well, um, for, for, for you as as a coach, you, know, you you've coached or played at every you know playoff level, right. the NCAA tournament, NIT, CBI, right. uh, conference tournament. Your preparation for is it the same for each one, or is there different ones? For I mean, NCAA tournament is the big one, but what's it well, like for each? Yeah, I mean the NCAA tournament's only relevant if you have a great regular season and yeah. can make it. So, uh, you know, as you progress through your season, if you're fortunate enough to get to the postseason, uh, you know, and really the turn, only term anybody really cares about is the NCAA. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I mean, you go, uh, see, I mean, I know that it runs the CBI. And that's great for certain, depending on where you're at as a program. And it was something called the CIT and even the NIT. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, all eyes, all attention goes to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. It's sort of the holy grail. And I'm, certainly that's the standard by which people judge a URI coach. Yeah. You get them to the tournament within a certain period of time. And if you don't, um, you're probably not going to be the URI coach that long. Sure. That's that. So I, you know, I can understand why coaches want to see the tournament get bigger so more teams get in. Sure. But if you saw this recent deal, the uh, Big Ten just struck for the media rights, like $8.5 billion, you have to wonder how the Power Five conferences and everybody else, when you come to these 350 basketball schools, how this is all going to work 
moving forward because sure. the gap the gap between the haves and the have-nots <laughs> seems to just be getting a lot greater. At the prep school level, being at the Naval Academy prep right. preparatory school, at that level, how do you, you know, and although you may only be with them for a year before they're uh, gone, how right. do you get them to still have passion for the game, even if you're with them for a short period oh, of time? Oh, oh it's, it's easy. These kids are just high-character kids. They really want to, um, you know, do well at the next level. And with my background, Division One, I, I can sort of, I, guess, I think I can do a lot in terms of preparing them for that. Um, but, the, you know, they have a, a competitive schedule. Um, the Army Navy game, they'll, uh, West Point has a prep school as well. That's a oh, big yeah. game for these kids. Um, now, when you've got kids that are motivated to play at the Division One level, as these kids are, this is a great opportunity to get stronger and get better, and they seem to embrace it. Um, they're not hard kids to motivate, obviously, if they're going to go um, not only attend the Naval Academy, but then commit five years of their lives afterwards to military service. These are very high-character, highly motivated individuals. They're very easy to coach. Well, I'm sure it also helps from their perspective to have someone like yourself who's coached at the highest level and has right. found success to show them, to tell them, hey, this is what to expect. So, you know, what I'm teaching you yeah. is sort of something that you should sort of live by both on and off yeah. the court. Um, I, I want to do this quick little thing before the end segment I yeah. have. Um, you, you spent, being at URI, you saw a lot of good players. If you could do it, uh, a all-time starting five at URI, who would it be? Well, during my tenure? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would put, uh, let's see. Very easy. We've got obviously Tyson would be our point guard. Catino would be our shooting guard. I'd go with Mike Brown at the small forward. Okay. Mike was a really, really good, solid player, great defender. For, I mean, he could have played in Europe a long time. I mean, not quite an NBA player, but really just had great fundamentals, really was sort of a glue guy. My favorite power forward absolutely was Antonio Reynolds Dean. At the center position, I'm not going to go with Luther Clay because. Well, Luther sat out the year. I said, I'm going to go with Big Mike Anderson. Okay. who was a guy that really, I mean, he literally, uh, his development as a player, I've never seen anything like it. Because truthfully, first time I saw him play, he came over the World Scholar Athlete Games. In the summer, you were, somebody threw him the ball, he ran with it, even though he didn't even know he was supposed to dribble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, honestly, he was terrible. He was <laughs> terrible. I said, oh, what? A, this is guy's <laughs> never going to be a player. And Mike threw just an incredible amount of hard work and, dedication became a really good player had a long professional career yeah. so that would be my um that, that was you know and I, I guess the guy that you have to put in it's a six man i was only fortunate enough to coach him one year but he was what a great player was kenny green sure yeah i mean let the, a tremendous shot blocker timing uh he'd be my first sub up front and my first sub in the backcourt so we're going to extend it to seven go for it i, I preston murphy okay t murphy really knew how to play could play a little point clutch shooter, um, just an excellent player. So that team right there would, could be in anybody's top 15, top 20 in the country. I want to briefly mention Tyson and, and Antonio. They both, you know, were in the news recently. Um, Tyson gets a job as assistant coach at right, Brown. Right. And then Antonio gets a job as associate head coach at Georgia, his, his, yeah. his, home, uh, his home state school. What's that like to see your players that you coach then find the success? Oh, it's tremendous. And a lot of times when guys go into coaching, it's because they had good experience as college players. They, you know, through the coaches they played for, those guys were role models for them. I can certainly relate to that experience. Um, another guy I played with, Mark Schmidt, has been the Bonaventure coach for a long time. We're the same, well, he's one year behind me at BC. So I think that's an indication, you know, when you talk about Antonio and Tyson, Al had a huge impact on our lives. Yeah. Preston was in the coaching business. 
for quite a few years as well. Uh, it's great. It's great that they're doing something I know that they love doing every day. Um, like I said, I know it's lots, a lot more stressful now, but sure. Antonio, you know, associate head coach of Georgia, if they win, he's really positioned to, you know, to make that next step as a head yeah. coach. And hopefully Tyson will get his opportunity as well. Before we end here uh, today, and again, I want to thank you for taking the time yep. to do this. I want to end on a segment called the One Word Challenge. So in this segment, what right. I'll do is I'll throw out a few names of people, places, or things that have some connection to you, and you have to do your best sure. to say a word or two or sentence that comes to mind. So sure. are you ready? Uh, yep. for, first, uh, Wayland, Massachusetts. <laughs> nice place to grow up. Uh, Kingston. Oh, great, great town. Great college town. Uh, Gary Williams. Uh, you know, one of the best coaches all the time, a true, a true Hall of Famer. Al Skinner. Uh, one of the best coaches of all time. Uh, uh, should, I, I don't know if he's in your eye Hall of Fame. He should be Boston College Hall of Fame. Tremendous coach, tremendous person. Uh, success. Uh, I guess being happy. I, 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 what, did, what did John Wooden say? Being, uh, giving your best or something like that. I don't know. I have to think about that one. Uh, Boston College. Um, I, Great school. My father went there. I went there. My daughter graduated um, in 2020. So uh, lots of history with my family. Uh, Kenny Jim. I loved it. One of the best places in the country to play at. I know we live in an era we have to have the big arenas, but it was a special place, hard place to win <laughs> if you were an opposing team. And last but certainly never, ever least in this universe, Timothy O'Shea. Oh, glad to still be above ground, I guess. I guess I think we can all say that, especially nowadays with everything that's yeah. happening. Well, Coach, yeah. I, I want to say thank all you right. for taking the time to do this. It means yeah, thanks for having me on. All well, right. Everyone out there who's enjoyed the subscribe, like, comment, share, because when Coach O'Shea here gets inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame one day, you're going to say, oh, yeah. I should have subscribed yeah. and liked all that fun jazz. <laughs> Follow on Twitter, Known Cart Night, and Instagram, Known Cart Night Show. In the words of the Dean of Talk Show hosting, Johnny Carson, Bidjo Hartfield, good night. Till next time, take care.